0: Welcome to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Tom.
1: And I'm Helena. Start. We have a sponsor on the show. This podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. I am very excited about this week's guests. Do you want to tell our lovely listeners a bit more about them?
0: Yeah, so on today's episode, we have Two of the loveliest people I've ever spoken to. Dr. Ed Hutchinson, he uh, works at the Center for Virus Research at the University of Glasgow. He runs a lab there. And Dr. Sarah Clawhissey, she actually works in the Bailey Lab, which has been featured on the podcast before, at the University of Edinburgh. And yeah, they were basically part of this really cool study. Not only was the science behind the research really cool, but the story of kind of how it all came together. Is really interesting because you know it was it was a bumpy road. It wasn't a straightforward path. I went and counted how many authors were involved in this paper, and it was fifty-four different people. I don't know how you coordinate something like that.
1: Oh, imagine the email chains! I just <laughs> goodness.
0: I I have a hard enough time like trying to organize like a Zoom. This podcast, podcast. Is yeah. hard
1: to organize, <laughs> and that's three of us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. So basically, the the study is looking at how viruses do their thing, basically, how they kind of go into a cell and hijack the cell's machinery to make copies of the virus. And, And basically what viruses do, and this is a process called cap snatching, they take a little bit of host DNA and put it on their own DNA. And so it kind of goes under the radar in the cell. It doesn't get detected by anything else. And then this DNA makes its way over to the ribosomes. These are the big cellular machines that make, you know, proteins and molecules and stuff that the cell needs. And it exploits that to, to make copies of itself, basically, which is wild.
1: Like it's as if the virus steals a hard hat, gets into the factory and then oof, can participate in the production line incognito.
0: Yeah, on the download. <laughs> <The> download. <laughs>
1: I think what's cool about this as well is that he, the reason that they managed to collaborate was because he tweeted about it on Twitter. And it kind of gives me hope that when I, when I mention, you know, people that I really admire in my tweets, maybe one day they will reach out and <laughs> collaborate, you know?
0: She's always tagging them in the hopes.
1: <laughs> you never know.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this is kind of like a story of collaboration, teamwork, generosity, kindness, in science, which is kind of maybe different to the to the typical sort of like cutthroat world of research that, that I definitely thought was the case. And yeah, Ed and Sarah are like the two nicest people ever, really nice. Our story begins with Ed Hutchinson working on cells infected with influenza virus.
2: All viruses they really have two unifying features. One is that they produce infectious particles, but the other is that they parasitize their hosts at the molecular level and they take over the ribosomes of a host and use those to make proteins. They don't encode ribosomes of their own. So all viruses have to feed ribosomes messages which which ribosomes can use. As we mentioned in the introduction,
0: viruses need to dress up their DNA so it can move undetected in the cell. Influenza is a member of a family of viruses that disguise their DNA in a process called cap-snatching, essentially stealing a bit of host DNA and attaching it to their own. The ribosomes, which are the factories that make proteins and other molecules for the cell, can't tell this camouflaged DNA apart from the hosts. As a result, they start making viral proteins and unwittingly creating new copies of the virus. As a postdoc in Oxford, Ed was researching influenza by using a technique called mass spectrometry, which allows you to see all the molecules and proteins that are getting made within a cell during the course of infection.
2: At the time um, I was working in Irvin Fodor's group at the University of Oxford, and Irvin had been encouraging me to develop my own projects around um, using mass spectrometry to look at influenza virus proteins. So the first thing to explain a bit about is the way this technique works. So for this sort of analysis... You take a sample, you purify proteins out of it, you use enzymes to break those proteins into um, short chunks called peptides, and then you use a technique called mass spectrometry to work out what those peptides were. With this
0: method, he discovered some strange proteins that didn't appear to come from either the virus or the host. Or, more accurately, it seemed like they came from both. What they had found was that these proteins were actually a weird Frankenstein molecule, made from host-virus hybrid DNA, created by the virus cap-snatching host genes and attaching them to its own. To the ribosomes, these combined DNA sequences basically just look like one big gene, and the resulting proteins were a combination of host genes and virus genes, spliced together.
2: That was completely unexpected, and we had no initial explanation for what was going to happen there. And I think because this story is going to touch on people being generous in science as well, it's something which Erwin would have been entirely entitled to say, this is great, we're going to continue working on that. Um, we'll let you know how it goes. But in practice, what he did was to say, take that away with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, use it as preliminary data to get a, a lab funded. And in fact, when we finally wrote the paper, he didn't even choose to be an author on the paper. He was just keen to see the story fly in a new lab. So he was extremely generous in supporting that being set up.
0: Once Ed's lab in the Center for Virus Research was set up, he began looking for backup to help piece together this complex story. Colleagues from the University of Glasgow pitched in and talking to other researchers at conferences led to the repurposing of unpublished data.
3: Last year I was invited to speak at the Glasgow Virology Workshop where um, I got talking to Ed and uh, we were talking about how cap snatch sequences were awesome Mm -hmm. and um, we started working together on this although what we contributed was a very small part of this fantastic and a uh, long, amazing story.
2: Although the basic idea, at least in molecular biology terms, is quite simple, there were a number of really quite difficult technical hurdles which needed to be tackled in order to figure out what was going on. So the work Sarah was describing was absolutely key to figuring out what was going on, as well as being a fantastic story in its own right. When I heard Sarah talking about the work she was doing, it was clear that if she, if she was willing, she'd be able to help us. So this was... People being generous with their time, but through the usual channels of um, scientists working together. So colleagues down the corridor, people you bump into at conferences, friends who you've who in my case I would I trained with and had gone off to work elsewhere and I stayed in touch with. So a group of people came together and by the end we had a, a fairly large collaboration. What happened next was was unusual though, because at that point um Maria Amrim, um, my friend in Portugal who'd been helping us with mouse stuff said, yeah, I've been to a been to a seminar which sounds really like this study and they have just submitted it and have you seen their preprint? Which I hadn't and so I I looked at Dublin Bioarchive and there was um, a description of a study which was different in the specifics from ours at every single point but in general terms followed exactly the same path and reached exactly the same conclusions and that wasn't a great moment I have to say I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I was—I I just got out of a, a fairly stressful training session in the university library, and I was recovering with a cup of tea and checking my emails. Um, and it's probably fortunate I was sat in the library at the time because you—you you you have to watch your behaviour whilst you're there. But I—I I, I did what what you would do under those circumstances. So I. I I thought you know we we have to make the best of this. I, I rang up the postdoc in my group, Liz Sloan, who's working on this, to immediately let her know what was going on. I I went and moaned at some considerable length to Director of the CVR, and between the three of us, we we agreed that you know what we were going to do was obvious. We were just going to publish what we had, and as uh, as as our director Massimo put it, uh, at least you know in any in any case you'll have a paper. We did two things then, which were. Um, I wasn't totally sure about I suppose. One was when we put out our preprint, we included a discussion of the other study, even though it was still in preprint form. Although I find preprints very valuable, I'd never actually discussed an unpeer-reviewed study in in something I'd I'd written before. And the other thing was that um, I wrote about it on Twitter, and I I was a grumpy late adopter of Twitter, so that was quite a new thing for me at the time. And both of those paid off, the reviews which came back, which were, you know, appropriately critical but very constructive, included very positive comments on the fact that we had discussed this complementary competing study as it would normally have been seen. But then the author of that competing study, who I didn't know at all, got in touch. So this is someone called Ivan Marazzi from the Icon School of Medicine at Mansano, And he said, look, you know, it, it's up to you. This is your 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 paper, of course. But... He said, I'm I'm getting fed up with fighting with people over papers. Our results could support each other very well. Do you want to combine the work and we'll make sure that the first authors stay first authors and the last authors stay last authors, so everyone is still credited for their work and we'll have a stronger story for it? And their study, like ours, was in major revision at that point as well. There was a a degree of risk in that because neither Ivan nor I knew each other at all, but we felt it was a risk worth taking. So we combined the studies, which... Is a very short sentence to say, and was three months <laughs> incredibly hard. <work. laughs> They're both great large stones and required a lot of unpicking and a lot of putting back together again. And they were written in completely different ways because Ivan and I do write in completely different ways. But we ended up with something where I think the science was certainly richer, and I think also complemented itself at, at, at key points in the papers. But also probably where the the final product I like to think probably balanced out the the better tendencies of both of our approaches to writing papers. So it, it was a, a long, a long and challenging process to do, but it ended up with a paper which thankfully the journal liked and and which we were able to then publish with all all fifty four co authors in the end credited for their work.
0: Sarah, I wondered if, if you could talk a little bit about what it was like just being being one of those authors and being part of such a, a big project. Were, were there certain challenges involved that you hadn't faced before? or
3: There was challenges involved. One of the challenges that I had personally was um, you become like when you're working on something with somebody else, you become very involved in kind of how they've approached a problem. So when the two papers were being combined. Personally, I just found it, although everything now is just so beautifully laid out, my head couldn't get around how they were going to integrate everything together mm-hmm. and make it not not necessarily understandable, but succinct. So that, for me, when the final paper was written, it was amazing to read through it and just see how excellent a job they had done on just integrating everything together and making sure that everyone's work was represented, that no part of the work fell by the wayside or was forgotten about. So following that was challenging at the time, but to be honest, Ed and Ivan did a fantastic job of almost shielding the rest of us from that and really taking it upon themselves to carry the, the heavy burden of integrating everything and, and working together. But apart from that, uh, Ed is a very communicative person in general (laughs) and so kept us involved at every step of the way which again is something that you don't always get when papers are being written you usually find out you're being integrated at this point and then at the end you get a final manuscript and you're like whoa what happened in the in the middle but it kept involved continuously which was fantastic
2: i'm glad you felt that's the case but i I will say as well that the involvement of people and actually particularly sarah was crucial because a number of the data sets in order to integrate them in the way she was saying needed to be really completely rejigged I think you were the recipient of a number of our frantic emails from me saying, could you do it this way instead? And I, I know you've been doing it that way for months, but could you do it this way instead? And you were extremely obliging at doing that at short notice.
3: Well, one of the things that I was planning on saying during this podcast was, I think it's, you have mentioned it, but I'm not sure you have quite mentioned how much of a, an amazing thing it is, is how many data sets that already existed you integrated into this. That is phenomenal because i think there is a general theme in science of you have to do everything yourself and i think your collaborative nature and communicative ways have meant that you've been able to integrate all of these data sets together and you haven't had to start from scratch you've been able to see what's there and work on it which is exactly what science should be
2: and i I think that that was definitely a a challenge we ran into actually it's interesting you pointed that out because yeah, there was still the sense that, oh, particularly if you're writing a high-profile paper, all the data needs to be new and it has to be, have generated for the first time and not been seen by anyone else. But and we, we were fortunate in many ways that useful data sets existed, but also it wasn't simply a case of, let's pick up a a data set which someone else has already produced and analyzed and take credit for it in its form. So a number of people who took data which was used in other papers, so Sarah's data had been used in very nice papers she published in in the Journal of Virology this year, for example. Those data sets were completely reworked and reanalyzed, and a lot of work went into doing that. So although the raw data has now featured in more than one paper for each of those. They're providing new information and new parts of scientific stories in a new setting. I think as we move towards a time where data openness is increasingly required of us, that's something, a real opportunity actually for us to to start making use of the growing number of large data sets which are out there. It's also, of course, something which is possible to work on remotely during lockdowns. So yeah. that's one of the reasons my group has not been completely... Uh, Twiddling our thumbs over <laughs> the last few months is that we have been able to, actually, in that, that case, largely working on data we've accumulated ourselves, which we now are reanalyzing in different ways. But most of the new new results we have recently have been had from reanalyzing data when we haven't been able to get back into a lab.
0: It, it feels to me that from people that I've spoken to, the world of research can can sometimes feel a little bit kind of cutthroat and like you're competing with everyone else to try and get your thing published before them. So I guess it must have just been quite refreshing to, to work on a project where you you and Ivan had just decided to just throw that out of the way.
2: It, it was really nice to, to be in that situation I mean not least because of course we benefited personally from it but also because it, it is nice when people choose to choose to work together. I, I think one thing I will say on that though is that there's there is this prevalent idea that science is necessarily a really cutthroat place and if you ask anyone, they'll say, Oh, you know, I've got this series of anecdotes which people told me over drinks and conferences of people doing terrible, terrible things. And, you know, people do sometimes do things which range from the, uh, from the secretive to the downright unethical because there are these pressures to get there first on them. But then if you ask people, How do your colleagues behave? they usually say, Oh, no, my colleagues are great. Yeah, the people I work with all the time are really nice, and you know they're really keen on on open science and and data integrity and people being credited. But but you know scientists, oh no no, scientists are terrible. And I think that the problem is that the stories of people being I don't know how uh, how child friendly your podcast actually, but the uh, the stories of scientists behaving in less than desirable ways, let's say, are compelling stories, and they're stories which in a sort of malicious way is quite fun to share. But that feeds into this idea that science has to be a a cutthroat place. And that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm really pleased you've chosen to talk to us about this, because I don't think this is an intrinsically unusual story. It's perhaps unusual that it happened on a fairly large scale, but scientists collaborate all the time. Scientists share data all the time and scientists for the most part are keen to see each other knowledge all the time. And it just doesn't always make for a, a particularly memorable story. So it's nice to actually have a chance to try and balance out the narrative a bit and Tell a story of what I think is actually a story of scientists behaving pretty normally, but just not in the way which we often talk about.
3: I think that Ed is right that um, collaboration and stuff is very common and people generally are quite open. But I think that with stories like the one that's being presented at the moment becoming more common, um, especially through things like Twitter and podcasts and more kind of informal presentations. Things are changing, and I think that earlier career researchers, which I get to claim to be, even though I don't think there's that many years between myself and it, <laughs> um, we get to see this amazing change. That, or well, I suppose you're saying that it's not a change, aren't you, Ed? But you're saying that it's it's just we we get to see that this is more represented, and so it's more encouraging for us to be able to enter conferences and talk openly about our work or speak openly about our work and not be scared, I think, is one of the biggest things. I think that video conferencing and similar things might make networking more difficult. One of the advantages of going to the Glasgow Virology Workshop and literally just sitting next to Ed with a cup of tea was that we could just chat and we spoke about the methods that I'd used and how we could apply them. And we were able to have a nice informal chat about that where nobody felt under any pressure. But with a video call, it might feel a bit more formal and you're less likely to just run into someone over tea or coffee.
0: I mean, social media in this case has been a really useful tool for you to kind of connect with other people. And I guess in the large part of that was how you ended up getting put in touch with, with Ivan.
2: Yeah, so ironically, Ivan is actually not on social media himself, or if he is, he's hiding very effectively. But I, I, you know, I, I don't even know the correct terminology, so I'm not great at this myself. I tagged, I think, one of his... Sarah, you probably know. right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tagged one of the other authors on the paper, and I think that's how worded eventually got to him. And that is a real challenge, actually, because I think preprints offer a, a huge opportunity for scientists to to compare ideas. Actually, I say scientists, I do mean biologists, because physicists have been doing this for years and think it's hilarious that so we think this is new, but. There's such a great volume of it. I mean, even before the firehose of papers, which started coming out with sars Coronavirus 2 there's such a huge amount of preprints that you, you need some sort of social glue for holding chats about ideas together and, and for holding discussion between people together. And that needs to be something which can accumulate over time as well. And up to this point, this has worked through physical meetings. So Sarah pointed out we met through the Glasgow Virology Workshop. I think the reason... It was as easy to have a chat as we did, other than that which is very approachable, is that we move in similar professional circles. So we had met repeatedly at many conferences in the years running up to that. So I, I wasn't just completely springing out of woodwork when I said, that was a great talk, let's talk about your work. <laughs> <laughs> at least I hope that wasn't how it came across. <laughs> um, but simply listening to recorded talks uh, through Zoom or that can convey information, as Sarah says, doesn't build up those connections doesn't facilitate that informal chatting and building up of relationships. So I think it, there are real opportunities for doing that in a way which doesn't involve huge amounts of national and international travel. And I, I'm quite excited about the possibilities there, but yeah, it has to be something a bit more sophisticated than, than simply watching pre recorded talks. Coming back to the research itself, what, in in your opinion, what do you think are
0: the, kind of the big implications of, of this sort of research?
2: Um, one, one of these, the striking features about it is that viral genomes are extremely small. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the, the Wellcome Trust's museum in Euston Road in London, but they have a, a very nice display there where they have the entire human genome printed out. And it's, it, it's a bookcase worth of printout. And if you print out the influenza genome on the same scale, it's a single sheet of A4. So... We're talking a very, very small genome there, and it's startling how much complexity is packed into that, into that small genetic space. And the main, I think the main takeaway from this study is not really any specific function for a gene um, or any, any particular outcome, although, although we did point to one or two things in that direction. It's simply the fact that this is a new way where there's a huge amount of potential genetic diversity which can be looked at not just in influenza, but in all viruses of this sort. So there's new places to look for ideas. That said, most of the work we did focused on influenza, so we can say some specific things about influenza there. One is that um, genes expressed in this way are visible to the immune system. What the actual implications of that are for controlling infection, we're not yet sure. It's something we're hoping to follow up on. But certainly T-cells can can detect the presence of of these cryptic uh, genes produced through this mechanism from infected cells. So that's one angle. The other angle is what these variant genes actually do. RNA viruses like flu, they mutate so quickly and they're under such strong selective pressures that there is scope for them to rapidly develop function within suitable regions of their genome. So there seems to be genetic genetic architecture in these viruses, whether it's has been selected for originally or whether it's just inadvertent, which means that they have a lot of suitable material which they can start selecting for for genetic functions when the need arises. And although we don't yet know what those functions are, they do seem to be valuable in certain settings. So there's a lot more... In- Work to do to figure out what's going on there. But I think the bigger thing this, this study points to is that there is a lot of genetic variation which it will be interesting for scientists to look at in influenza and in many other viruses as well.
3: One of the things I wanted to say was um, as a kind of cap snatcher file, I used to make the joke that um, the integrated sequences from the host into the viral genome um, or the viral mRNA rather were the epitome of a host virus interaction and honestly this work has uh, taken that idea to an entirely new level that um, I, I don't know if everyone else gets excited about stuff like that but I, I just think it's amazing
0: cool I mean so I think that that's all the questions that I have about the research in the paper I don't know if there's anything else you guys would like to, to add or highlight before we before we switch off
3: I would like to say that um, if people are interested in seeing what a lab should be run like, obviously the Bailey lab is amazing, but the Hutchinson lab has made resources available. For example, your, um, your pamphlet, you've made a document available to new members of your lab, which talks about everything from, you know, where the pipettes are to what to do if you're feeling down, which I think is a fantastic resource. And you made that publicly available on Twitter.
2: I, I'm I'm really touched you you brought that up and, and what I will say just in in the spirit of well firstly th- thank you very much but also in in the spirit of pointing out that these are increasingly normal behaviours I'll, I'll I'll point out that that uh, that document which we have found very helpful in um, welcoming people to the lab and and making it clear how we work together as a group and what can what they can expect of us and what we will expect of them that was based on other similar documents and and there are other very good examples out there but but thank you Sarah for mentioning that
0: massive thank you to dr ed hutchinson and dr sarah clorhacy we had a really lovely chat and they're both just wonderful people you can find them both on twitter and as usual we'll put all the links in the show notes
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out more about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university
0: if you'd like to get in touch with a question suggestion or if you want to be featured on the podcast you can reach us on our facebook page edinburgh university science media or at our twitter at usci that's at e-u-s-c-i you can also drop us an email at usci.podcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk
1: yes check out the sustainability issue it's very good this episode was edited by me, Helena Kornu, and hosted by my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. We'd also like to welcome Alex Bailey, our new podcast manager, to the team. The podcast logo was designed by YouSide chief editor, Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin MacLeod.
0: I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science. And one final question I have for you, Sarah, is how many cats do you have?
3: I have two cats. I do fear that you were able to hear one of them because my partner had to come in and kind of crawled along the floor to grab one. <laughs> he was trying to get up the back of my chair. Um, I, I only two. <laughs> but they're very, very, very spoiled and naughty. And they're a bit ridiculous,
2: to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> a creaky chair, but I'll try to, to sit very still.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. When I was um, recording the first episode of the podcast, I was sitting down on this chair and I said it to my editor and she's like, what's that weird clicking noise in the background? And then we figured out it was this very old creaky chair.
2: So I'll just pretend I'm phoning in from a rickety sailing ship. So. <laughs>
1: And after a few rounds of that, I managed to get Tom recording in a closet, under a duvet, and I no longer have to deal with that infernal chair!